November 5th, 2020. This is the Hermetic Hour, and I'm your host, Pope Runyon. And tonight, we're going to give a preview of our forthcoming publication, The Seventh Ray, Book 4, The Omnibus Issue, The Violet Ray. We're finally going to publish the Seventh Ray Omnibus issue, which we have been heralding for 20 years, reprinting the old journals from 1972 through 1978. The Seventh Ray, Book Four, Omnibus issue, The Violet Ray, is a time capsule buried to preserve a record of the formative years from 1970 to 1978 of America's longest-running ceremonial magic lodge, the Order of the Temple of Astarte. The Seventh-Ray Journal was resurrected at the turn of the century in a new format, running for three issues from Book 1 to Book 3 in uh, 2011. Now we are unearthing, unearthing the time capsule and bringing back the originals in facsimile to be studied and enjoyed by a new generation of magicians. In the old pages of the seventh ray, you will find articles by William G. Gray, Frederick Adams, Jeffrey James, Louis T. Culling, David G. Kennedy, and Jeanine Renee, and the first publication of Jack Parsons' Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. You'll find the history of the OTA, along with the return of the Grail in the age of Aquarius, and trisecting an angle with a pentagram, and, of course, those rip-tickling cartoons. So keep your eye out for it, and, uh, and with us this evening, prepare to return to the thrilling days of yesteryear when Simon, King of the Witches, chanted, Magnetic Electric, Magnetic Electric. <laughs> you know, Simon King of the Witches is a 1971 movie, which is based on on, which is actually based on a lot of our activities during that period. Uh, now, the original Seventh Ray was a pamphlet-style magazine, typical of science fiction fanzines of the early 1950s. It was printed photo offset process on multicolored eight and a half by 11-inch paper and cardstock, typeset with a manual typewriter, illustrated with original line art, folded and stapled and mailed to subscribers. The magical and neo-pagan community had several similar publications, Church of All Worlds, The Green Egg, Peripheria's Corathalia, Joe Wilson's The Waxing Moon, and Ed Fitch's Crystal Well. We all advertised in each other's journals, and we networked in a fashion similar to science fiction fandom. The style and the look of the seventh ray was inspired by Lynn Carter's Sandalwood and Jade, Poems of the Exotic and the Strange, 1951, and Galleon of Dream, Poems of Fantasy and Wonder, 1953. I had known the author and illustrator of these charmingly beautiful little books in my high school years, and I tried to achieve the same magic with the seventh ray. Lynn Carter passed on in 1988, and we published a memorial to him in the Blu-ray book one of the new seventh ray series. And also some of his artwork uh, from from, uh, Sandalwood and Jade. 
Now, on page 135 of the Seventh Ray, Book 3, The Green Ray, February 2011, there is a boxed announcement for the forthcoming omnibus issue of the Seventh Ray, which would reprint all the old 1970s issues of the journal in a new typeset, we said, with original illustrations. Below this was another announcement heralding Adamson's quest. As a separate forthcoming publication, featuring chapters from the 1977th Rays in new typeset with original illustrations, combined with new chapters from the 21st century 7th Rays and the previously unpublished 12th chapter. Now, after nearly 10 years, we're finally fulfilling that promise. We published Adamson's Quest in March of 2019 in, in new typeset, and current editing, combined it with another novel, Shamgar the Purple Dragon. This was, of course, putting the cart before the horse, but transcribing Adamson from the old photo offset typewriter scripted seventh rays was something of a test run for this omnibus issue. Now, transcribing was too time-consuming, and OCR technology was impeded by the colored paper we had used on the originals. It made our little magazine more attractive and distinctive, but conversely, it made it, it made legible reproduction virtually impossible until we discovered software that would drop out the colored backgrounds behind our ancient typewriter typeset. This has enabled us to reproduce the originals as printed and published in the 1970s. They are legible and and the enlargement from the original 65% reduction has increased the point size of the typeset, making the text more readable, complete with all the old misspellings and typos, which we hope will add to the charm of an authentic reproduction, I hope. I might add that along with the old original material, we have included previously unpublished articles and features that were intended for publication in the new seventh ray, which I will describe following the summary of the 1970s material. So, what is so important about the old seventh rays, and why should our readers make an investment to acquire them for study and inspiration? Well, that question is answered by the first issue, Spring Equinox 1972. On the olive green cover is a heroic picture of Amagus holding a flaming wand and a Solomonic sword. He wears an Egyptian nemesis and a rose cross. Behind his head looms a septagram with the all-seeing eye and the letters OTA. Kneeling between his Roman-booted feet is the high priestess holding up the chalice and the shield of the Grail Hallows. From her girdle, an ankh is suspended. This picture, along with my egotistical editorial, tells it all. The occult revival was underway in Southern California, and we were leading it. The Golden Dawn was dormant, and the OTO was struggling to recover from a series of scandals. Wicca was the hot ticket in Southern California, and we were the Solomonic, magical, neo-pagan version of British witchcraft. Both Cardinarian and Alexandrian witchcraft traditions had their origins in Solomonic ceremonial magic. The British OTO and the GD authorities favored us over Grady McMurtry to revive the OTO in California. 
Lewis Culling had given us an OTO charter, and Gerald York in England had provided us with all the OTO rituals in Crowley's handwriting. But Francis Brigardi here in Los Angeles favored Grady McMurtry. McMurtry then offered us, and a local witch, uh, a joint OTO charter on the condition that we each dissolve our respective corporations. The Church of the Hermetic Sciences and the Church of the Eternal Source, respectively, which Sarah the Witch and I both refused. The OTA was firmly against the use of illegal drugs. Our magic was based on hypnosis and yoga, and we could not accept the third chapter of Crowley's Book of the Law. We ceased calling ourselves Thalamites and decided to go our own way, following the tradition of the 18th century Craterapoa, which we had discovered in the writings of Paul Christian in 1969, which were published in 1963. Most of the preceding is explained in the lead editorial. The remainder of the first issue of the Seventh Ray contains a review of The New Pagans by Hans Holzer in 1972, which features articles on the OTA and Peripheria, with Fred Adams' art on the dust jacket. From the archives feature the Lamegaton Sloan 2731 with reproductions from our British Museum photostat copy. Followed by Wedding in the West by Frederick Adams, wherein the maestro describes an astrological hieros gamos honoring my marriage to Sister Artemis in June 1972. This is followed by The What and Why of Magic by Frederick Adamel, Nelson White, our Inspector General. This article is important because it reflects our original attitude toward the subculture and our reasons for rejecting Philema, which we had originally supported from a libertarian perspective. We were aligning ourselves with the establishment during that tempestuous era. Nelson and I even advised and assisted a government counter-terrorist operation, which led to the rumor that we were a CIA mind-control cult. The next issue, Summer Solstice 1972, has another of our iconic illustrations on the cover, showing a robed and hooded magus holding the wand above a four-horned altar on which the chalice, pedicle, and sword are displayed, with two pillars rising behind him and a brazier of incense burning in the foreground. This art was first used in posters, which we stapled on utility poles around USC and UCLA in 1970 in our first recruiting campaign. It attracted our first high priestess, very honored Soror Cara, who became our representative to England. It brought us very honored Soror Ariel, who is now president of Ferrifaria Incorporated, and Professor Robert S. Elwood of USC, who became one of our most enthusiastic academic supporters and eventually vice president of the Theosophical Society in America. From the archives for this particular issue featured the fourth book of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa and part two of Nelson White's The What and Why of Magic, followed by a review of Franz Barden's Key to the True Kabbalah, which I am updating and correcting with additional notes, and an article on alchemy, which is embarrassing in light of our later association with genuine alchemists. This is 
followed by a poem which presages our eventual embrace of Valentinian Gnostic Christianity, but seems a bit pretentious in retrospect. Looking back on the first two issues, I recall a dinner party at Regardi's when I asked Phyllis McMurtry, who had just cast horoscope, why she seemed afraid of me. She did not answer, but Regardi answered for her. We're all afraid of you, Pope. Issue number three has an editorial on initiation, an article on Tibetan Mon religion uh, that needs to be rewritten. Uh, if, you, if you're listening, Joe, yeah, you wrote that one, and it does need to be rewritten. And the third concluding part of Nelson White's What and Why. The fourth issue, Winter Solstice 1972, was a lead editorial on the philosophy of magic, which still holds up, followed by Why Magic by British author William G. Gray, from whom we learned some of our visualization training methods. This was followed by Frederick Edemel's mostly political essay on the Knights Templar. Then we delivered the Pasta Resistance, a reproduction of text and graphics from the OTO ritual portfolio we had received from Gerald York in 1971. Specifically, Crowley's title page with his Baphomet seal and his, and, uh, and his or Mather's sketch of the temperance card with its alchemical symbolism relating to the ninth degree of the OTO. We published these exhibits in advance of our declaration establishing our collegium of the OTO in 1976. We had no intention of publishing these rituals, but proving that we had them may have prompted British author uh, Steve, uh, Francis Kings uh, to do exactly that in 1973. Now, the OTO has been trying to buy up copies of King's book ever since. But if you want the graphics, you'll have to get the seventh right. However, by 1980, we noticed that our old photocopies of Crowley's rituals were beginning to fade. We donated the whole portfolio to the deputy grandmaster of the OTO. With King's book in our library, we did not need to keep copies. But let me make this clear. We did not provide Francis King with the OTO rituals. King got them from Gerald York the same way we did. He asked for them. Volume 2, number 1, Spring Equinox, 1973, starts with an editorial essay on the decline of the Order of Tempe Orientis. Um, as Lewis T. Culling had predicted, that we would supplant them based on Crowley's mysterious prophecy, it shall be his child, and that strangely, from Literal Legos. But the strange child turned out to be Grady's. Grady McMurtry had a secret weapon, Alistair Crowley's Thoth Tarot deck, which he used to launch his OTO revival. Our presumptive editorial was followed by Standards of Survival by Frederick Edemel, which is mostly legal and political. And then the first chapter of Lewis Culling's History of My Association with the OTO, which magical historians will find interesting. The issue concludes with an astrological meditation, a book review, and a memoriam for Frater Aquilo, Lewis Curly Culling, 1894-1973, and one of the best of our cartoons, 
magicians playing Monopoly on the Tree of Life. Volume 2, number 2, Summer Solstice 1973, begins with an important editorial essay, Magic and the Neo-Romantic Movement. This was inspired by Robert Elwood's Spiritual Groups of Modern America, 1973, in which he classified the neo-pagan movement to include the OTA, Ferraferia, and the Wiccans as a resurgence of 18th and 19th century Romanticism. I broadened this menu to include the Society for Creative Anachronism, the Renaissance Fair, and LOSFIS, the Los Angeles Science Fiction Association, as elements of an anthropological romantic revitalization movement as a theme for my master's thesis in anthropology from California State University at Northridge in 1980. A History of Magical Cults and the Rise of Neo-Paganism in Southern California, 1980. Don't try to fight. Every, every copy has been stolen in Northridge. This essay presents a far more sympathetic view of subculture attitudes and liberal environmentalism than our earlier position papers. We certainly were romantics, and the Victorian age romantics we venerated may have been reactionary medievalists, but they were also anti-industrial socialists and lovers of nature. And by this time, Prater Ketamel had left us and taken some of his right-wing extremism with him. From the archives, featured part two of Lewis Culling's OTO history. This is the episode that recounts the demise of Jack Parsons' Agape Lodge at the hands of Eldon Motherby. Uh, uh, you know, Grady McMurtry and I, you know, we, we had our, we had our, you know, our differences, but we, but we, we were kind of, we were kind of friends. And he thought that, that I calling, uh, I call it you-know-who, Eldon Motherby. That really cracked him up. And uh, and should be of interest to members of the Jack Parsons fan club. Now, those who have seen the film Crowley, and it's also the British version is called The Chemical Wedding, 2008, they may recall him reading a letter from my Californian lodge, which has been taken over by a writer of science fiction. Now, that letter was from Lewis T. Culling, and was the reason that Culling was given an OTO charter, which he passed on to us, and which we used to establish an OTO collegium, which eventually published Jack Parsons' book, Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword, in the seventh ray for the first time in 1976. Volume 2, number 2's cover story, was Adamson's Quest, Chapter 1. The novel was to continue chapter by chapter until her final issue, number 20, in 1978. Volume 2, number 3, Autumn Equinox 1973, started with an editorial essay, Magic and Politics. And this was primarily a reflection on our experience in the 1972 Themis War, which was a brouhaha in the neo-pagan community over public displays of illicit sex and drug behavior. We believe that affiliation with groups that conducted such dangerous activities endangered the entire magical and neo-pagan community. This was similar to our position regarding the OTO. This was followed by Bill Gray's Occult Secrecy Essay and a paper 
on the lesser ritual of the pentagram, relating to the later controversy of the quadrants in volume two, issue number four. A book review and chapter two of Adamson's Quest concludes issue number three of the second volume. Volume two, number four, Winter Solstice, 1973, begins with an editorial essay, The Baal, Ashtart, Mythos, and the Magic of Solomon, which was subsequently reprinted with artwork in the Book of Solomon's Magic in 1996. This was followed by an archives article on Dean Kelly's Enochian True Relation and the controversy of the quadrants, which is mentioned above, with chapter three of Adamson's Quest concluding the issue. Peter Sitzbath is going to do a wrap-up article on this controversy of the quadrants thing because this this keeps uh, this keeps coming back to uh, back to rise up again. You know that the that the, the arrangement of the pentagram ritual. Okay, volume three, number one, Spring Equinox, 1974, begins with an editorial essay, What Kind of Interplane Projection, Explaining Our Pathworking Theory and Method. This is followed by Joseph Wilson's beautiful poem, Hymn to Uranome. And then we have part one of a concise history of the Ordo Templi Ashtard, which will continue through to part seven in issue number 15 in 1975. And finally, chapter four of Adamson's Quest, which has the pictorial map of the lower Yazira astral plane. Volume three, number two, Summer Solstice, 1974, opens with the introduction to Adonia, our first of four seasonal ceremonies based on the myths of ancient Canaan rediscovered in the 1930s. This introduction and those following in the next three issues were reprinted in Seasonal Rites of Baal Astarte and Prince of Cotton, the Magic Bow, published in 1998. This was followed by Thoth's Joke by Frater Sebasius, master of our temple in Connecticut, who would later become the dean of our OTO Collegium. See the seventh ray book to the Red Ray, um, published in 2000 on page 14. This was followed by part two of the concise history and an article on our modern technique of ceremonial magic emphasizing a somber hypnotic approach over hysterical frenzy and conjuration. A critical review of The Exorcist, the film, and the novel concluded the issue. Volume three, number three, Autumn Equinox, 1974, begins with an introduction to the Festival of Seven Gates, our autumn seasonal based on the Rashomon tablets, and Ishtar's Descent and Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils, followed by part three of the Concise History and Chapter Five of Adamson's Quest, a cartoon satirizing the male leaders of the neo-pagan community and a book review of the reissue of Crowley's Magic Without Tears concludes the issue. <coughs> that cartoon, by the way, uh, actually looks like a number of uh, the characters, looked like a number of the uh, leaders of the pagan community at that time, and, and, and that, really, that really amused a lot of us. Okay, volume three, 
number four, Winter Solstice, 1974, starts with the introduction to the Festival of Helios, Balsamin, and then Soror Artemis' The Magical Heritage of Egypt and Babylon, chapter four of the Concise History of the OTA, chapter six of Adamson's Quest, a cartoon showing an animal house version of a magical lodge party, uh, along with a along with a little ditty, which I see if I can remember. We are the Great White Brotherhood. We're all for love and motherhood. Calling down the angels in a transcendental way. We never curse. We never hex. We don't believe in booze and sex. We'd rather fast and pray. Uh, let's see. And chapter four, the concise history, uh, chapter six of Adamson's Quest, and uh, the Feminine Mysteries by Joe Wilson and the Emerald Table of Hermes Trismegistus, rendered by Frater Alleyin. That's Frater, now Frater Thabion, that's myself. Volume four, number one, Spring Equinox 1975, begins with Nuptia, the vernal equinox ceremony, followed by the Gollum from Sister Artemis, the witchcraft by Frater Valerian, OTO, Jack Parsons, and this predates our Collegium Declaration of 1976. We were testing the waters. Next was an article in Astral Projection and Ceremonial Magic by Frater Nimrod. Uh, part five of the concise history of the OTA and a poem, Flight, by Soror Athena, which concludes the issue. Volume four, number two. Summer, fall 1975 began with a lead editorial on mysticism and magic. This was written before I had undergone my Tibetan tantric training in 1985 or my Amanita Mascarian experiments in 2000, but... I had experienced LSD in the 1970s, and I was insightful enough to observe that illumination before individuation was expanding consciousness before extending it. I think I'm going to give that one to the master go. Then we had a critical book review on Denning and Phillips' Magical Philosophy, 1974, and the archives feature excerpts from the Panarion of Epiphanius, followed by Chapter 7 of Adamson's Quest and Part 6 of the Concise History of the OTA. Volume 4, Number 3, Winter Solstice 1975, starts off with my editorial essay, Gnosticism versus Paganism in the Ancient and Modern Magic, which presages our eventual synthesis of the two modalities in Rosicrucian Yoga. This is followed by a fictional tribute to pagan to paganism, daughter of the oak, leading into one of our most important presentations, the epic poem Cult of the Sangreal, which describes and defines our vision of the Western esoteric tradition from Solomon to Parsifal, pagan theurgy to Rosicrucian thaumaturgy, providing an outline we were to follow into the 21st century and providing us with a prophetic prologue for our first degree initiation. This is followed by a review of two books by Kenneth Grant. In the Magical Revival 1973, we are mentioned obliquely, which gave me the excuse to predict our coming Collegium Declaration. The issue winds up with the final part seven of the Concise History of the OTA, which deals with the 
contentious departure of our Inspector General Nelson White and our establishing of the Montsalvan Hermitage and Temple in Pasadena, where we remained from 1974 to 1997. Item 5, number 1, Spring 1976, begins with the return of the Holy Grail in the age of Aquarius Leo. This is a significant astrological configuration connected to our Sagreal vision. Applying the doctrine of astrological opposites, we demonstrated that as we enter the age of Aquarius, the water bearer is pouring his heavenly river into the crater on the opposite side of the celestial sphere. This is followed by chapter 8 of Adamson's Quest and a review of Ethel Coughlin's Sword of Wisdom, which is more of a biography of Moeno than of Sam Mathers. Volume 5, number 2, Fall, Winter 1976, starts with the philosophy of neo-romanticism, hearkening back to magic and the neo-romantic movement, Volume 2, number 2, Summer Solstice, 1973. Now, this essay recapitulates and updates the earlier the earlier version I was in an anthropology graduate program at the time, and I had thoroughly absorbed the ultra-liberal synthesis of environmental and social-cultural perspectives. I and we, the editorial and the magisterial we, were now politically correct and eager to align ourselves with those aspects of romanticism that supported the progressive agenda. This was preparatory to our chartering the Collegium Ad Spiritum Sanctum of the Ordo Tumpi Orientis in 1976, which we posted before presenting Part 1 of Frater Balerian's Jack Parsons' Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword. We published four more chapters of the essay in the forthcoming issue, but we declined to publish Chapter 2, The Sword and the State, judging it at the time to be too subversive to serve Parsons' memory and our security. On rereading it today, in 2020, I have decided to publish it in the omnibus issue with a facsimile from the original manuscript. But we must admit that the Caliphate OTO reissued The Complete Freedom is a Two-Edged Sword in 1989 and copyrighted their edited version. Copies of this edition now sell for $900, but it is available in PDF. We concluded the issue with a review of Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus Trilogy, which the author thought was the only review that understood and expressed the meaning of his books. Volume 4, volume, no, volume, volume 6, number 1, Spring Equinox, 1977. Lead editorial is a preview of the issue itself, followed by Sarurkara, Professor Cheryl Christensen Abel's Jungian Individuation on the Capitalistic Quest, excerpted from her 1976 doctoral dissertation, Magical Epistemic Communities, which was a comparative study of the OTA and a shamanic cult in Uganda. Cheryl was a female Indiana Jones who had been our representative in England and later completed the Tibetan Vajrayogini Tantric Yoga program, which I had accomplished in 1985. Cheryl's opus is followed by the next installment of Jack Parsons' Freedom as a Two-Edged Sword, The Sword and the Serpent, concluding the 18th issue. 
of the seventh ray. Volume 6, number 2, Winter Solstice 1977, begins with Arabian origins of magic and witchcraft, which recounts the contributions of the Heranian Sabaeans to the Picatrix and the Parsifal. The editorial essay is a prologue to Parsifal and the Hermetic Grail by Janine René. This is followed by the first publication of our Hermetic Caduceus, Western Hermetic Yoga System, reprinted in Hermetic Yoga Beyond the Middle Pillar, Volume 1, in 2015. The Sword and the Serpent by Jack Parsons and Exorcism of an Earthbound Spirit by Soror Nike conclude the issue. Volume 7, Number 1, Fall, Winter, 1978, Issue Number 20, and the final issue of the original series, opens with an essay establishing our new initiatory format, Fellowship of the Grail, based on the alchemical symbolism of our seasonal ceremonies, which now become our first degree and an entrance to the church, whereas our traditional OTA initiation from the French version of Crater and Pola now became our second degree, and the entrance to the order. This was followed by The Pentagram Reveals Its Ancient Secret by Soror Athena and Frater Aliyin. Not myself at that time. Although I had been a D student in algebra, I had been conversely good at geometry and trigonometry. In Pythagorean meditation, I had realized that the ancient pentagram symbol was a device for trisecting angles. I imagined that proving this would be an accomplishment for the order of the Temple of Astarte, but I needed a more astute mathematician to analyze and render the proof. Fortunately, we had a talented lady in the order, Sororapina. The task was not an easy one, as I thought it would be. It would be in, in, in. But Debbie plugged away at it and finally wrote QED on the project, becoming the second person in the world to successfully trisect an angle by geometric method. This was followed by Astral Reflections by Jeffrey James, The Woman Girt with the Sword by Jack Parsons, and then we presented a table of our magical alphabet, Hebrew, matched ancient Phoenician with all the correspondences. And then came the introduction to Wells of Power, the Golden Dawn Kabbalah by David G. Kennedy, who had been one of Regardi's protégés. And our initiatory versions of the Priestess and the Magus Tarot Trumps. And these were appropriately followed by the Mass of the Elements, our Seven Sacrament Communion, and an article Magical Sacrifice by Soror Nike, then Solomon's Cipher by Frater Aralar, and the Second Rite by Soror 72. And a book, and a book review concluded the last issue of the original Seventh Rite. <clears throat> Let me say something a little bit about Frater Aralar, who did uh, Solomon's Cipher. Uh, he... He was a very talented magician and member member of the order, and he was also in the witchcraft community. And uh, when he died, he held court at Raven's Flight, our, our, our witch, witchcraft center in Burbank. He held court uh, on his deathbed, and I hadn't seen him in years. And we all lined up to you know to to say goodbye to David. He had a brain tumor. And and when I came up, 
David looked up from his deathbed and he said, he said, oh, Pope, he said, I'm so glad you came. I've got something to show you. And he reached under under his, his mattress and pulled out this roll of, of manuscript. And he started showing me all of the, the research he had done on the Kamea system um, of, of astrological talismans. And, and, uh, and this, is, this is a very, very complex, very old system. Uh, you'll, find, you'll find most of it in Cornelius Agrippa. Uh, but but it is not it is not as easy as it as it looks. And David had had done a marvelous job with this. He had just and and David and I said David I said I said you know, we we got to get this published. And uh, and and I, I said I I, I, I I not not in the seventh ray. I said I'll, I'll I'll see I'll help you. We'll see if we can't get Lowell and our wiser to, to to publish it. And and uh, and. Uh, he said, "Well, you know, okay, you know, you can try." But anyway, uh, that was the that was the last we saw of him, and he died a few days later. But um, uh, after he passed on, and of course we printed a, a memorial for him in the seventh ray. And he did this this little article, by the way, Solomon's cipher is really really good. It it, it relates a lot of a lot of the Solomonic. Uh, the Solomonic inscriptions to the Armenian ancient Armenian alphabet, and uh, and, that, and, and, and and but his Kamea work, uh, this was was really really terrific. And after he died, I, you know, I talked to his wife, you know, and 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 uh, and, and, and and asked her if if if. Uh, if she wouldn't uh, let us try to see if we couldn't place it in one of the with one of the publishers, and she absolutely refused, and and basically because you know even though she loved him and and and, and all, but she was a witch and he and we were ceremonial magicians and she just didn't you know that she just wasn't gonna gonna release. I don't know whatever happened to David's work on the Kameas. Uh, and but that's a you know a little little side note on this. Also, I might do the back on the Parsons papers. Um, that sort of a state. Uh, the reason why I was worried about it is because Jack Parsons stated quite frankly, um, selective service, the craft, was wrong. And that no 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 nation should should con, should conscript its 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 young people to 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 fight you know to be soldiers. They, he thought that was that was morally wrong and and it should never be done. And and you know if you want if you want an army you know um, you know induce them and pay them and 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 you know but don't but don't 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 drag them into into military service. And at the time. I had a security clearance, and several of the members of the order had security clearances. And Jack, and you know, and I knew enough about Jack's background uh, to know that he had had, um, you know, and quite frankly, uh, Jack Parsons had a good friend and colleague, Frank Molina, a rocket, another fellow rocket scientist, who was a communist. And, and Frank dragged, dragged Jack to a few communist meetings. But Jack, 
Jack just didn't like communism. He, in fact, he even fulminated against it in in, in this this essay. He he uh, and he and he even thought the French Revolution was a was a bloody horror, which it was. And uh, and so I, for Jack's sake. Yeah, because I really, you know, Jack Parsons is one of my favorite people. You know, I mean, I, I really, really uh, he's kind of a kind of like Orson Welles, but <laughs> he liked Orson Welles too, by the way. Uh, and he is one of those one of those one of those people that I wish I had known him personally. But anyway, um, for Jack's sake and for our sake, I did not publish publish this this part of it. But now that I'm looking at it, I realize that so much of the problem that we have right now in our government and in this country comes from having drafted those kids into the Vietnam War back in the in the 70s. We drafted these kids, and, and they hated it. And you know, and 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 uh, and those uh, we're we're suffering for having for having done that. And by the way, that that selective service law is still on the books. It's still there. You still have to, you know, the draft is still there. So, and Jack was right about that. So we're going to republish uh, when we when we uh, you know publish all this. We're going to republish this, and we're going to you know, we're going to show a, a facsimile of Jack's original manuscript just to just to make sure that we've got it. And and and, uh, and of course because hell you know the caliphate they went ahead and they published they did their own edited version of the whole thing and they published it. So just to be just to be straight, we're going to. But right now, I, I have to say that I that I thoroughly I thoroughly support uh, uh, Jack's uh, uh, the sword in the state. Uh, anyway, uh, this is what you have to look forward to in, on this. But I, I have to say this: uh, we have you know um, been putting this thing together. And this this is going to run over 300 pages. This is going to be a doorstopper. So consequently, we're thinking about doing it as a hardback and, and uh, making it as attractive as we can. Uh, and, uh, and the other option is to is to split it into two issues of the seventh ray. But I you know I, I think we should keep it you know in one, under one and you know the whole thing under one cover. And and uh, so that's probably what we're going to do. Anyway, I'm going to publish this 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 summary or annotated uh, table of contents that I just uh, that I just read you. I'm gonna I'm gonna publish that on the website as a as a blog, so you can refer to it along with that along with that uh, that uh, wonderful uh, macho um, um, cover the first issue. We'll, we'll we'll put that up too. And uh, and so that about uh, you know, that about wraps it up. And as I say, we'll have the we we got the yoga uh, Rosicrucian yoga book is now on Amazon. You can get it. And uh, I've been struggling to get the cover. And Fred Fred Adams did a beautiful cover of Mary Magdalene for that book, and I've been struggling to get it to get it up. So I, I think hopefully it'll uh, the cover of it is Hermetic Yoga Volume Two. A Rosicrucian Yoga, um, um, and as I say, that's on Amazon right now. And of course, Adamson's Quest, uh, you know, which was from the Seventh Ray, and that's uh, and, and that is on Amazon also. And so next week uh, we'll be back and, and uh, with uh, more with more uh, Hermetic uh, wisdom or or 
at least knowledge. We have innocent wisdom, at least it'll be hormetic knowledge. And so until then, uh, uh, happy. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've been with this election going. I don't want. To, I, I don't want to say happy election. <laughs> but just, just, and, and it's, and it's too soon to say happy New Year, and it's too late to say happy Halloween. But, but, but. Uh, have a good one, and we'll see you next week. Good magic.